0: Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary.
1: You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. We're dealing with criminals who live their lives like it's the last five minutes of Scarface. They literally have a massive TV, a BMW, and they go to Dubai once for every six weeks on holiday. And in between that, they're probably skint. Skin, 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 skin. You also have people who remember really, really emotionally traumatised and suffering from mental illness as a result of their participation in the conflict, as a result of their imprisonment. You know, they lived fast and they lived on the run,
0: and they just didn't adjust you know, to this new period at all. I'm Nicola Tallentz. And you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld, in Ireland and across the globe. It was once a clearly divided underworld, where paramilitary groups ruled with fear in a strictly organised way. There were rules, sides and an unwritten code where everyone knew their place and where the terrorists were king. But over the past few decades, things have changed and Northern Ireland's gangland now resembles a mixing bowl of hungry for work former terrorists, Instagram gangsters and dangerous young street soldiers who are loyal to just one thing, money. This week, I'm talking to Belfast Telegraph crime correspondent Alison Morris, who tells me about the 90 gangs who rule the North and who vie for drug money while recruiting children and teenagers into their ranks. We discuss hot tubs, veneers, and the new generation of criminal who are fast taking over and taking on the old rules and codes. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. figure of 90 gangs in like 1.8 million population
1: yeah a lot of those two and then we also have the addition of some foreign gangs
0: too yeah that's what and I said so I noticed have quite a few
1: you know Eastern European gangs mm. Um, you know and in typical you know Belfast fashion there was a a lot of talk for a while about the, the Russians who had sort of infiltrated parts of South Belfast. They weren't Russian at all. They were actually Ukrainians living in South Belfast, but nobody had bothered to ask them where they came from at that stage. And they were heavily involved in drug dealing and prostitution, but they were doing it in what would have been a really loyalist area. And at one point that would have been unthinkable. I mean, there would have been such payback. But it turns out that those um, Eastern European gangs had much more firepower Than the loyalists who would have threatened them, you know, they're running around with these Mm -hmm. sort of old rusty guns from the conflict, whereas these boys had brand new shiny automatic
0: weapons. So weren't that easily intimidated or bullied. So things have changed up here in the past, say, 20 years anyway. And I think it's probably, I think you're probably about 10 years behind us, are you, on the drug scene?
1: I would say that a lot of the the fact that the drugs were able to be controlled because there was so much paramilitary activity here that I think the major drug dealers were afraid and they just didn't want the hassle of having to deal with the paramilitary groups. And then, remember, after the Good Friday Agreement, there was a purge. There was a purge of drug dealers. So, direct action against drugs, which was basically just the IRA, but because at that time they were meant to be officially on ceasefire and involved in peace negotiations, they set up a sort of shadowy group of, of IRA members And those people then did what I think was called at the time internal housekeeping. So anyone who was a high-profile criminal or seen to be problematic to the peace process who was also seen to be a threat to their members if they couldn't retaliate. So say, if we have to wed ourselves to peace, what happens if X, Y, Z comes for our members? So instead, they just wiped them out and they wiped them out in the space of about a year and a half. Um, And at that stage, you had people like Mickey Mooney, who was one of the biggest drug dealers in Belfast at that time, He was shot in a bar in the city centre. He had other people like Brandy Devine, Speedy Fagan, all of those people, and they were all killed within a very short space of time. So at that case, that meant that anyone else who was thinking of becoming a drug dealer at that time might have thought twice about what they were doing, bringing huge amounts of drugs into Northern Ireland,
0: given the consequences. Speedy Fagan was Newry, wasn't he? He had taken over from his own boss, Farrell, who'd been shot down in Dundalk or Drogheda. Some years previous by his partner. Yeah, and at that time there was a lot of talk that some of those drug dealers
1: were haunting over their friends. They were giving their locations of their mates to the IRA to give it to Direct Action Against Drugs to say, don't be killing me, please, but... I know such and such will be in this place at the time because those people knew they were under threat and they were living quite transient lives and they were also, like some of them were moving into rented houses next door to police officers away over, you know, in East Belfast knowing that no one would mm. come to them then. Um, and there was a lot of trying to hide and deflect from that. But they took out, you know, a whole raft of them, I think, by the time Day Day finished. There was something like 12 people had been killed in a very short space of time. And Up until when? About the turn of the century, two thousand. <sighs> that was just in the early 2000s. and Yeah, yeah and... Those killings, you know, some of them were quite low-level, but the majority of them were very high-profile drug dealers who mm. would have been well-known at that time, um, and they all went very quickly. And that... Left um, a vacuum. Yeah, and so therefore that obviously meant that if you were going to be... The, the drugs business in Northern Ireland, any advancement that they were making at the end of the Troubles, that sort of slowed it down a bit, because that took out a lot of the main players, in Republican area specifically. Mm. But there was already at that stage a crossover between Republican drug dealers, people from Republican communities who were drug dealing, and loyalists, because there was a killing of two UDA hitmen. The IRA killed them. They were responsible for the Sean Graham's bookmakers attack, for the murder of Theresa Clinton, for several other killings. They were like the most wanted, and they were murdered in an IRA um, hit. And Mickey Mooney was reported to have put a death notice for them in the Belfast Telegraph and that was said to have sealed his fate. But at that stage, there was definitely a bit of a crossover, albeit
0: it was being much done much sort of privately than it would be now. It was unthinkable, I'm sure, for the general public, was it, that there was any sort of a crossover? Most people were oblivious that this lifestyle even existed.
1: You know, if you remember, this was the start of the sort of rave culture, coming to, to Northern Ireland at that stage, and had these huge, big events. Illegal raves were taking place in fields, outdoors. And, you know, the amount of drugs these people were selling must have been phenomenal. When you think about the, the crossover at that stage... But I mean, the majority of people sitting, you know, in their their high school in Carnation Street coming on had no idea this whole underworld existed Mm. and it was going on behind, you know, just slowly below the surface. And obviously you had,
0: I suppose, redundant paramilitaries then as such, because we're all supposed to be at peace Um, and they are looking for something to do. Well, I've always said that for the past 20 odd years, I
1: deal with the same people. They're just now working under a sort of different brand name, if you know what I mean, but they're still exactly the same people. So you have people who are completely were wedded to peace and those people who were in paramilitaries who were really instrumental to trying to get the peace process going. And they couldn't have brought the peace, the rest of the sort of members of those paramilitary groups along without those people But then you had the ones who weren't interested in the political side of it. You also have people, you remember, really, really emotionally traumatised and suffering from mental illness as a result of their participation in the conflict, as a result of their imprisonment and all those sort of things. And then you have people who their lifestyle was so on the fringes of society. You know, they lived fast and they lived on the run and they didn't have a normal lifestyle or normal family life. And they just didn't adjust you know, to this new period at all. And so they did lose members along the way the loyalist paramilitary groups are probably different because they obviously had a structure to their criminality and that their criminality could have took place underneath the flag of the loyalist paramilitary group as long as there was a kickback, as long as there was money coming down the road at the end of the week. Whereas some Republicans then used what skills, let's say, they learnt, you know, as members mm-hmm. of paramilitary groups to go and organise criminality. Um, and you could see that quite clearly with some of the figures then that emerged after that, you know, that those were people... Who had had experience in paramilitary groups but had become either disillusioned with the peace process or just decided that that sort of nice sort of nine to five lifestyle wasn't for them. And if you have someone who was involved in, you know, basically, let's face it, murder and mayhem for 20 odd years, what are they going to do? They're going to get jobs with security van Tesco's, you know, like what are they going to do? I mean, they're unemployable because of the length of their record. If they don't get into the sort of community jobs that were created to try and put put like sort of structure into people like that's lays and people who want to participate in that process. But for those who weren't interested in anything like that, I mean, the lives are just going to be chaotic
0: no matter what. So if you essentially wanted to set up a drug business here in the early 2000s and you have ecstasy, you've obviously got cocaine coming in big time as well, you have any amount of essentially staff members available? Yeah, well, I mean,
1: and what happened too is a lot of the loyalist paramilitary groups continued to recruit Extending long after they declared their ceasefires, so the combined loyalist military command called a ceasefire in 1994. But they continued to recruit after that, and continue to recruit to this day. So that's why, when you quote the numbers of them, it can seem like such extreme numbers. If I say there's like a thousand members of that group, there'd be a thousand people in these Belfast UDA, there'd be a thousand, two hundred people in um, these Belfast UVF. You know, there'd be at least five hundred to seven hundred members of Southeast Antrim UDA. And you quote these figures, and it sounds massive. And that's because they continue to recruit very young men. So there would be people in their twenties, born into peace, he would be member, members of loyalist paramilitary groups. And we're seeing that also moving to the dissident Republican groups in places like Derry, where there are very, very young men and women who would be associated with those groups. And the person who is believed to have shot Larry McKee was 19 years of age if, at the time, and that was who the, the suspect who was named locally was. So you can see that they're continuing to recruit very young people. And those young people are very handy when it comes to, especially when it comes to sort of think of the loyalist paramilitary world. If there is drugs or extortion, Mm. if you want to threaten people, or put pressure on them. Or if you want to cause chaos in the streets, let's say in opposition to the protocol, you want to block a road, you at a minute's notice could have a couple hundred men that you could call up. And that's the reason why that and internal feuds are the reason why they continued to recruit long after the peace process. So those people... Are there and they will do what they're told anyway, mm. you know, whether that be involved in, in drugs or criminality or in other members of the community. So
0: they're funding themselves on drugs.
1: Yeah, many. Well, I mean, the, the, there's a difference between the loyalist paramilitary groups and the republican paramilitary groups, and the loyalist paramilitary groups will be directly, I and mean, not all of them, because some of them have sort of wedded to the peace. They would be directly funding themselves through drugs. The Republican paramilitary groups will be taxing drug dealers. So there will be drug dealers working in that community. They take a sort of one hand away from that, you know, one step away from it. we we'll never be caught with drugs. We're publicly anti-drugs. We're kneecapping people for involvement in drugs. But you will notice that the people they kneecap, you know, in the main, are, you know, very low-level drug dealers within their community. And in the meantime, the very large drug dealers are paying extreme amounts of money to, first of all, for their own safety, and to make sure that other people then don't come in and sort of encroach on their area.
0: So the drugs are coming from the Republic mainly?
1: They all come from one place, and if you ask any police officer involved in the drugs trade, they'll say, you know, something like 97% of the drugs on this island all come from one crime family. And Mm. I'd maintain they might have passed through 20 people's hands before they reach here, so no one thinks that they're directly dealing with those people, Mm. but they're indirectly dealing with them, so that'll maybe go through a dozen
0: other people before it makes its way Mm. to the streets of Belfast. And is there any evidence of how it's physically getting here? Is it coming over land from from the Republic or is it coming overseas from Scotland?
1: There's a lot of it, I think, is is just being transported throughout the island and that's very easily done, you know, and that's very easily done in all sorts of ways. And because we live on such a small island and because we have an open border and because of all sorts of other things, there's no checks. So unless police have intelligence, it's very difficult to try and crack down on that. And I know that there was some drugs that were coming through Europe and we know that the same trafficking lines that were being used for people smuggling. So I think the people only became aware of the the Northern Ireland involvement in the smuggling of people after the terrible case in Essex and after that. But then if you looked at the people who were involved in that and the people who were convicted of that, those were people who had links to, some of them had links to Republican groups going a long way Mm -hmm. back into our our past, and they were just using exactly the same smuggling routes that they would have used in the past to smuggle cigarettes, to smuggle, you know, alcohol, to smuggle any other kind of commodity, and they just transferred it to people. And they're the same people who would have been bringing drugs, and on some occasions those drugs had guns with them as well, so bring drugs and guns in. Mm. But those are established supply routes, and they've been getting used, you know, for decades. And every now and then they might change the cargo in the back of the van, Mm. but it's the same people in the same routes.
0: Most definitely. And I mean, I think they were also, there's another clear sign that there is no divides when it comes to the underworld, because certainly in the case of um, uh, Thomas Marr, who was one of the first EncroChat uh, suspects to be convicted, he was certainly um, supplying and and moving stuff for both the Kinahan and the Hutch side, which seems to be this deadly divide that would be akin in a way to your loyalists and your Republicans. You know, it's supposed to be that, you know, that nobody would ever work between them. And yet, when it comes to money, when it comes to somebody getting a bit of business in that world, it doesn't matter.
1: It did. And I remember too, speaking to someone in relation to the, the anchor chat and speaking to a senior police officer at the time and saying to them, and they says, well, one of the things that did surprise us Was the amount of connections and crossovers between various groups that we had assumed, you know, somewhat naively, that weren't cooperating with each other in that scale? But, you know, when it comes to money, I think that those sort of, you know, the colour of your passport
0: doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And in your time, kind of, I suppose, over the last decade or more, um, has the crime beat changed a lot in the North?
1: I think it's became more dangerous and it's became more dangerous because it's more chaotic. So there would have been one point if I had to go into a certain area and report on something and there could have been a really violent dispute going on in that area, I would have known who was in charge and I would have been able to phone ahead and say, can we come in to report on this? Will we be safe? And they go, yes, you can, that's fine. Or no, you can't, don't. Um, whereas now that you find because there's so much fracturing and so many sort of individual groups and also social media has made journalist targets, if you like. So we're now personalities before that. You know, I could have walked down the street and nobody would have known who I was. Mm. Whereas now, because of social media and people see your face on the TV sometimes or they used to hear your voice on the radio, they do know you and that means it can be lovely because people can say, oh, it was lovely reading your lovely piece or it means that they can scream abuse at you across the road and tell you they're going to kill you. It just depends what mood they're in that day. And Northern Ireland is a really small place and Belfast is an even smaller place um and you know and I'm quite a noticeable sort of figure and you know there are times when I think that that would fear me most I'm not afraid that you know I've got paramilitary threats I don't think that any of them were ever going to shoot me if they were they weren't going to tell me first like are they really like you imagine the element of surprise would be the key to that <laughs> you know if you're going to send me a threat it's probably because you're not going to do anything um but you do worry that someone you know would whack you the head with a bottle when you're out one night mm-hmm. or you know and that's more worrying and even covering courts became quite dangerous and treacherous, you know, where people would scream. So, so it's sort of become, courts.
0: because of the breakdown and because of the peace process in a way, which has created a breakdown of those structured paramilitary groupings, it's a bit of a a case of, it's a bit of a free-for-all. So you yeah, don't know who you're dealing with well. anymore.
1: We're a post-conflict society, so we have massively high levels of of mental illness and and, you know, prescription drug addiction and all sorts of other things that come with that. And, you know, people like that, you know, say, you know, hurt people hurt people. And, you know, sometimes you're dealing with people who aren't well and, then mm. you know, they're, they're harming themselves as well and so they wouldn't think anything of, of harming you too. And you always have to be aware of that when you, when you go somewhere, which I wouldn't have really heard before. I mean, I still go and do my job on my own because a lot of the times people aren't going to speak to me if I come with an entourage, let's face it. Um, but there are occasions when I thought, do I really want to go there? Is that okay? Or should I maybe tell someone at least where I'm going before I do Probably.
0: <laughs> tell me <laughs> <laughs> just send me a text <laughs> at least if I go missing, I don't know where she was <laughs> at least, last <laughs> well, no. at least we'll know but um, I was thinking of you there when I saw those riots and um, when you guys were talking on, on, on the conference we did about riots and how to behave in them and you were having a bit of a giggle that you'd had a bit of a clatter over the it head at one stage. It can
1: be great cracker, right? Like I have to say to you, you know, but at the same time, you see some awful, like, mad sights. I mean, I remember one time when I was, you know, um, up in Ardoyne, the, the water cannon came out and this guy decided to come out, moon the water cannon, pulled his trousers down, started flashing it and the guy in the water cannon must have thought all was Christmases came at once. He just pointed it directly at his backside and sent him flying down the road, um, you know, completely naked. And then there's other things, you know, that are just bizarre. But, yeah, I get hit with a bit of slate at a, a riot that was, they were standing on top of the roof of the shop, holding slates off and firing them. And the photographer, the, I blame the photographer anyway, I always blame photographers, but he had said, I just want to get you know, one nice arty shot of the orange men as they walk up the road from behind. And I was standing beside him and this whack of slate bounces off a, a crib and hit me in the mouth. And I put my hand up and I felt like a bee sting and there was no blood, it wasn't even sore. And I'd said to him, oh, I've got hit in the mouth, but I'm fine. I'm dead on. We'll just keep on working. I'll sort it out and I go down to the office. And I looked around. And I could see his face turned white. And he took a picture. And anyone knows, you with know, the digital camera, you can see the background. And he turned the camera around. And it looked like someone had caught me with a fish hook. And my whole lip was hanging off. Um, and I was like, I need to go to the hospital. So I went down to the hospital and I had to send for a facial surgeon. And while she phoned, while she, while she was, um, she'd literally just arrived. She'd looked at us. She was like, we're going to have to do this and we're going to have to do that. My phone started ringing and it was a member of a paramilitary organisation. I got, This is such and such, the code word is such and such, we want to claim an attack on the police. And I'm like, I'm now in a hospital bed getting my lips stitched up. And the, the doctor was could saying, you like, me could, you, could you put your phone down? Like, I mean, this is sort of quite important. Um, and then, you know, I had to ring that through the office and they had to ring the police, but they got a, a claim of responsibility. But that's where it happened when I was in the middle of getting my lips stitched up in the Royal. No
0: respect. None whatsoever.
1: <laughs> Although I went home and actually drank wine through a straw. I was that traumatised because I couldn't touch my mouth with anything.
0: And I was like, I'm drink. <laughs> but I'm sure you don't relish going back into those situations again. Nobody wants to see a return. Did you think they were to, gone and behind you?
1: Nobody wants to see a return to that. and I certainly don't want to see young you know, kids, 15, 16, 17 years of age, stand rioting and ruining their life. And also, how too bloody old to be chasing around after things like that. Now, you know, that's a younger woman's job like it really is it's not for me anymore but it's depressing when you see the the age of the people and they're clearly being exploited and during you know the early days of the Troubles and even when I first became a journalist we wouldn't have used words like grooming but that's what it is they're being groomed you know and they're being groomed by older people to do something that's going to damage their entire life and for you know the end game, it's not going to achieve anything. I mean, like, Boris Johnson isn't going to remove the Irish Sea border because some wee lad in his shankles burning a bus, you know. And so you think that there's no the consequences to it are only for them. They're not for anyone else, you know, mm. and it'll be felt for the rest of their lives, you know. And Once a young person gets into the criminal justice system, it's really difficult to get them back out again, mm. you know, and you almost have to, that's it. It's almost the, the end of their life. So, no, nobody wants to see a return to that. It, you know, it depresses me even saying, you know, even thinking about it and thinking about the consequences of it.
0: Is there pockets in the north, obviously, there's Derry, you've Armagh, you've the bigger cities, that, and Belfast, clearly, that criminality is is just in, or is it now in every small town around the, the, the province?
1: You would have. I mean, there's clearly criminality and drug problems right across the board, whether that be, and I mean, let's face it, you know, the the, so the middle class need to buy their drugs off somebody, and that's, that's the, the point that exists everywhere, but in terms of that sort of organised criminality, they usually stay in places where they're born, literally, so from their own house the estate. So I know there's a lot of talk about bringing in unexplained wealth orders, but I'm not sure they're going to be any use here. The people who are talking about them are people who don't understand the way things work here. We're dealing with criminals who live their lives like it's the last five minutes of Scarface. They're living it large every day of the week. They don't have assets. They don't have, you know... This isn't people who have, you know, horse ranches somewhere and 20 different houses and they don't have a business portfolio. They literally have a massive TV, a BMW, and they go to Dubai once for every six weeks on holiday. And in between that, they're probably skint. You know, and unless they're going to go and take, you know, their teeth veneers from Turkey and their girls big boobs, I don't know what it is that they're going to seize because they don't have assets as such, but they will be the person with the nicest house in their housing estate, but they will never move from their housing estate because they're a big fish, you know what I mean, in a small pond, but to move somewhere else, they wouldn't have the protection because they live in places where their neighbours are either members of their criminal gang or they're terrified of them and they're terrified to speak out. Like if they moved into the middle of some nice leafy suburb somewhere, they wouldn't have the same protection they have living on their own patch and their own turf. And, you know, when I hear people saying, you know, just bring on explain wealth, for it's not be really the end of it. I go, this is people who don't understand
0: how the drug business works. And is works the so. Assets Recovery Agency active here?
1: No, we, we, the National Crime Agency took over from Assets Recovery and Assets Recovery was disbanded. They're talking about trying to bring in something similar to CAB and something similar to that. The National Crime Agency, you know, had very limited success. And you can see even by what they have taken off them, it'll be like an ex-council house that someone bought. That'll be the kind of assets that they're seizing. Mm-hmm. It'll not be huge, multi, you know, million-pound assets. There's nothing like that. There are clearly people who are making that kind of money, but they're not the people who would be the sort of very visible criminals that people want to see put an end to. You know, when people say, why can't the police deal with those people? They're not talking about the massive living on the, you know, the high end of the the drugs business. Mm. The majority of them are not low-level drug dealers, probably say medium-level drug
0: dealers, but they just live very, very extravagant lives, but they don't actually own anything worth taking off them. And they spend everything they make. Everything they make. Yeah, Yeah. very quickly. But I think there is an attitude with the Criminal Assets Bureau that sometimes even if they do have what we wouldn't consider to be a very valuable house, but the taking of it is... It's the it's the the um, you know it's it's how that looks to the community that you yeah. cannot have that.
1: Oh, it's it's taking the girlfriend's handbags. One stage I heard that police mm. were trying to take a dog because it was like an expensive dog, one of those wee yappy dogs that they wanted from from someone. Um, but they're taking things like that, and I mean, as she said, I'm not sure whether that is ever going to deter anyone from from mm. getting into criminality because they can just replace those things as quickly as they got them. But I suppose for the visibility, if you're you know working a sixteen hour job and trying to survive on, you know, working tax credits and everything else. And someone beside you who doesn't work is living like that, you know. Yeah. And then it's this sort of the money laundering of that. So there's, you know, people who have legitimate businesses, but the businesses are always really predictable, you know. So it'll be someone who'll be a drug dealer, but their girlfriend will own a hairdresser to the nail bar. I'll own an eyelash bar. That was a new one to me. You can have an actual whole bar just for eyelashes. Um, and those people would do juice to launder the money. Some beds are a great place for laundering mm. money. At one stage a couple of years ago, it was bouncy castles and hot tubs, which was my favourite. So every crook owned a bouncy castle and hot tub business. Um, you know, and then you'd see, you know, the front garden of some wee council house and everyone was having parties and hot tubs at one stage. And I will laugh because one person who I was having to, to deal with and they said to me, No, it's no problem. And sure, if you want a hot tub, just let me know. And I'm thinking, I don't know who's been
0: in that. And I doubt you're cleaning it properly. So no, I don't want your hot tub. (laughs) I'll give that one a miss. It sounds to me like the wealth because there's so much sort of, and maybe it's a a cultural thing that has come up out of the troubles and that, but the extortion of it. So you have it probably more spread out, maybe, the wealth, the actual earnings than there is in... It is, because it's
1: it's spread out among, you know, loads of people who would be, if you're talking about paramilitary structures, you know, there would be members of paramilitary groups and then you would have, like, a brigadier and then you would have, you know, a TAC and then you would have, you know, commanders below them. And all of these people are literally, I mean, they're literally the commander of their own street. You know, it's not like they're a whole battalion of people behind them, but they will be the person who will get a kickback from from it in that street, you know. So there's money spread out all over the place, you Mm. know, and they do if you... Go snooping on their social media they do have um, pictures of themselves off on holiday to, for some reason as they said
0: Dubai seems yeah, very popular Turkey for the teeth yeah <laughs> <laughs> Turkey too um, those teeth are about 25 grand apparently there's well there's the grand. Sunday World
1: did a, a story a couple,
0: a couple of years look ago Looks like a horse
1: yeah the Sunday World did a story a couple of years ago where they had like three or four um, members of or alleged members of the UVF had all been to Turkey to get their teeth done and the headline was the Ulster Veneer Force right <laughs>
0: And I think they're all raging and having their the teeth marked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure. But outside of that then, what sort of, and I know you've mentioned to me before, that there was a lot of kind of murders that were maybe not overlooked, but they weren't given as much attention maybe as they would have been in another environment. Yeah. So is that prevalent or is there a low murder rate here? The murder rate, I suppose, the, the traditional murder rate,
1: this isn't an unsafe place to live compared to the crime in most areas. But what we wouldn't have seen was those type of, you know, we'd have seen you know, paramilitary fighting, kind of kills, but wouldn't have seen those type of gangland murders. And that is only something that you'd have seen quite recently. So the murder of Robbie Lawler in Ardoyne, you got to understand the geography of Ardoyne you to know how shocking this was to the people who lived there. This is like the Republican heartland. This is a place, too, that would have had quite a high level of dissident Republican activity in it. Um, it's an enclave, so it's an interface area beside a loyalist areas. so people there would have always lived behind peace walls quite clicky, wouldn't have really, you know, you know, stayed in their own community, everyone knows everyone's name. So the fact that someone like Lawler was doing business in Ardoyne, I think, took a lot of people by surprise. It certainly took a lot of my readers by surprise who continued to abuse me and say, no, there's no drunk, Dublin gangland killers getting shot dead in Ardine. He's lying in a garden. He's definitely dead. There definitely are people being shot. And then the kickback of that, and here's where you have the crossover. So the person who was killed in retaliation from that, Warren Crossing the son of Tommy Crossan, used to be the head of the continuity IRA, you know, very senior Republican, very senior dissident, murdered, you know, nobody's ever been convicted of his killing, but it's believed he was murdered by a rival Republican group. His son then was into the criminality. He was linked to the Lawler murder. He's now dead, and I really don't think that we've seen the end of that situation. There are other Mm. people... Are involved in that. There's two people currently in remand, um, in prison, and if they're not convicted, I wouldn't like to be them trying to find somewhere safe to live after that, because you know better than anyone Mm. the people that you're dealing with are they won't stop. You know, and there's no fear.
0: So were people surprised that there was Dublin drug dealers coming up to do business? Or were they they surprised surprised they were being murdered here? They weren't surprised. I don't think people were surprised it was
1: Dublin drug dealers. They were surprised that there were drug dealers basically hanging around Ardoyne. And I think that then they were surprised at the level of crossover that existed and the fact that there were people who were drug dealers who would have been known to be sort of petty criminals, but that they were associating with someone like that. Because in the minds of the people who lived there, this is still a strong Republican, proud area, we wouldn't have any of that here, it wouldn't be entertained here, and clearly it was. And that is where you get the crossover, where you can see the crossover. And then if you go back to, to the the um, the murders that we had that almost collapsed the peace process, the murders of Jack Davison and Kevin McGuigan, that came quite quickly after each other. Jack Davison was a senior RA commander, Kevin Gwigan was a member of Direct Action Against Drugs. Back in the day, he was running around shooting drug dealers for the IRA. Mm. He shoots Jack Davison in the street, and he shoots him dead with a brand-new Makarov pistol. The only place those, those guns had ever been seen before is in the hands of the Kennedys and, and, and involved in that feud. And you know if you look at the ballistics and a lot of those killings, they were using those guns, and they were literally using them once and throwing them away so that they didn't have them on them, whereas guns in Northern Ireland would have been used... You know, if you get HET reports in the troubles, the same weapon would have been used over 10 years in multiple punishment shootings, attempted murders, murders, all of those sort of things. It shows you how easy the access to weapons was. They didn't even need to retain them. They were able to dump them straight afterwards. So then you had to ask, what was a former IRA man from the Short Strand doing with a gun that could only have came from a Dublin drug gang It couldn't have came from anywhere else because the police knew that was the only place those guns had came from. They had arrived in Dublin from Eastern Europe, and they were being distributed from there. And that then raised all sorts of questions too about the crossover that existed between Dublin criminals and people who lived up here under the gaze
0: maybe of, of being sort of staunch Republicans. Mm. Which were, I mean, we're very clear about the crossover. It's just to, to get that into the heads really of the public.
1: People don't believe it until they see that. Mm. And so until you see that sort of physical evidence so that mm. this was the gun that was used in this murder this gun could only have came from this place, it could only have. Then you have to, people have to start questioning then, what is the level of crossover and what is the real danger? Because the fact is, I mean, getting access to guns was not the easiest thing at one point. But when you see how easy that access to guns then becomes, and then there's questions that existed because the retaliation killing of Kevin McGuigan almost collapsed the peace process because police said there was professional area involvement in that. I mean, I know, and it doesn't matter what anybody else says, I know from my own sources, that was not a sanctioned killing. But what did happen there was you had members of the professional IRA who were wedded to the peace process, who said, hold on one second, he's just shot one of our members. What about all the, you know, wee joyriders and thieves that we kneecapped who, when they were 18 years of age, 19 years of age, and they're now 40-odd years of age, and they're criminals and have access to guns. What if they come along and start killing us in retaliation for that is nothing going to be done for this. And clearly at that time, she'd were like, no, we're wedded to the police. Nothing can be done about it. Leave it to the police, let the police sort it out. And clearly they weren't willing to do that. So then you have like an old boys club of former provisional members taking revenge for one of their own members. And that obviously led to a whole incident where unionists were going to walk out of the executives and the peace process nearly collapsed. But what I found most interesting about that was what was the link between Kevin McGuigan and the Dublin criminals he got the gun off.
0: Because he's obviously... They're not just supplying them with guns.
1: You don't hand a gun to someone unless you're good mates with them, let's face it. Mm, Nobody mm. was going to hand him a gun unless they thought they trusted him and they knew him. And, I mean, that, that was a transaction that wasn't going to take place with some stranger.
0: Like, you can't just waltz off down into Dublin and tap mm. someone on the shoulder and ask them for a gun. I noticed there was a, a seizure of, was it 10 million euro worth of cocaine here? There's been a lot of in drug seizures. Two, two months? Yeah, to a to lot of the... drug seizures lately. Um, and obviously the
1: police are... A lot of this is a great success. There was crossover between Belgium authorities in relation to that as well. And that's where you see a lot of the European gangs. And some times too, they're using this place as a sort of stepping stone to other places. So I think it's maybe easier to access the market here. And then once you're here, you can access the south really quickly. Once you're in the south, that can then get passed on to other places, maybe go back over to mainland England, come through Europe. So I think that they're using, in some cases, those major drug gangs are using... Northern Ireland is a stepping stone, not necessarily somewhere where they intend to distribute all their, their drugs, but somewhere where they, they think it's, it's safer and easier or there's not as much scrutiny on them. And sometimes because our policing still so security
0: orientated, things like that can, can slip sort of under the radar. And what do you think is coming at Northern Ireland for the near future
1: I sort of from organised crime? I worry about what's going to happen in the summer because we do have loyalist paramilitary groups here agitating, and and they're clearly unhappy with the direction the peace process is going. They think that we're going to have a border poll in five years, or, you know, that that um, there's going to be the demographics are going to change when the census comes out, you know, in January next year. What's that going to say? And they can be very easily exploited. And sometimes a lot of that street violence is is sort of masking other things that are going on behind the scenes in the background, including sort of internal disputes between those organisations themselves but ironically as our society normalises criminality will be will normalise in the way it is in other places so just as you have you know organised criminality in the streets of manchester the streets of london and the streets of dublin you know the fact that the, the peace process managed i suppose in some ways to deter those people well there's no deterrent really here now and so i think it you'll see in some ways a more normalisation of our criminality just to become those sort of larger criminal gangs and that always brings with it you know, more drugs and obviously more dangers as well. And we already have, I mean, the biggest, you know, problem with drug deaths here is almost always mixtures of prescription medication. You know, at one stage, the um, PSNI were were lifting 30,000 diazepam tablets a, a week at the port. And I can imagine how much it's getting through if that's how much they were season. And those are flooded onto the streets, and they're really quick, easy money because they're bought in places like China for pennies, you know, pennies. Are you
0: seeing a lot of them coming through the postal system? Now a lot of that comes
1: through the post, and in fact, at one stage, I did a feature on it and the place that they actually had to go over to England to the um, main customs point and say because there was nobody in England was searching specifically for fake prescription medication because it isn't really a problem in other cities. It's a problem here because I think it's due to the sort of overprescribing of those sort of things during the troubles and people just became addicted to them and then generationally addicted to them. Mm. Um, And so they were specifically looking for those kind of drugs. But the gangs that are selling them are making clean fortunes from them and using very young people to distribute them and in some ways using housewives to distribute them. We've seen grannies, you know, being convicted of selling these these drugs because you're selling them, you know, a strip of them for a fiver. There's not big money in it for the people who are selling them on the streets, but there's a massive amount of money in it for the people who are bringing them in because the strip that's being sold for a fiver probably costs 20, 20p in China, you know. And what about fentanyl? Any sign of that? There's no sign of that. I think a lot of it has been recently, a lot of it's diazepam, a lot of it's tramadol and... Um, Lurica and those sort of drugs mm. are, and mixtures of those. And any major, with a spate of drug deaths, you tend to find it's a combination of all of those, plus possibly cocaine as well, mm. and then huge amounts of alcohol too. Um, and I suppose people don't understand when they're taking those drugs because they're up for hours and hours and hours on end, then there's probably drinking more alcohol than a normal person could cope with, you know, enough alcohol to kill a horse, and the combination of the whole lot is what's killing them, you know. And it's sad when you're looking at the inquest, listening, it's a 16 year old girl or a 17 year old boy. Um, has being found, you know, dead, haven't taken these things.
0: Do you think you're coming to a place up here that you will have an organized gang that will not just be working together across the sectarian divide, but who will be be, be working together as one unit, one gang? Um,
1: yeah, I think that we I mean we do already have them working together, but not as you said, across it is and it's kept on the hush because it's it's doing it it's being done across the sort of peace walls and the barriers. Um, as it goes forward, I think that when people identify themselves in criminal gangs and the way they're very identifiable in the South, it makes them more of a target for those paramilitaries looking to target them and, and tax them or exploit them. But what I do think that we'll see more of, of is those criminal gangs hitting back against the paramilitaries and the dissidents and asserting their control and their power and saying, No, you are no longer in charge around here. You know, we are now. Um, and when you have very young men who are fearless, and because they have no in some cases they've no value for their own life and if you've no value for your own life you've no value for anyone else's really, do you? So I think that that's what you'll see more because sometimes when you're speaking to very young people they're so angry um, but also they're angry at a whole range of things including the fact that there's paramilitary control in their state so I do think as those drug gangs develop and go on I think you'll see a kickback against the, the paramilitary groups from them people who are just going no, I'm not going to pay you £10,000 a week I'm just going to shoot you instead
0: Alison Morris, thank you very much
1: Thank you for having me